You're listening to another hope-filled podcast from Life. For more information about our church, visit lifenz.org. I want to talk about a story in Luke's gospel that's just the most glorious story that epitomizes gratitude, which is what I think are roots that all of us need. Because gratitude is not just the fruit of intimacy with Christ, it's actually the fuel of intimacy with Christ. Luke chapter 17, and you know this story. As a matter of fact, the reason it was on my mind is Pastor Scott told this story, kind of the cliff notes of it, during Sistas, during one of the offerings. And he preached a profound message in about 90 seconds involving this passage. And so I'm actually just PSing what Pastor Scott taught yesterday. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he, and Luke is talking about Jesus here, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. Now, what he's telling them is exactly what Leviticus 14 tells lepers, that if you'll go and show yourself to the, to the priest, there's a possibility you can be cleansed and be brought back into regular communion, regular life. Um, so he says, go and show yourself to the priest in accordance to Leviticus. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, just one, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And then Luke gives us this wonderful throwaway line says, and this guy, this one out of the ten who actually remembered to go back to Jesus and say, thank you for healing, healing us, Luke, the physician, the only Gentile author of Scripture. All of the other authors of Scripture are Jewish, except for a few authors that are formally classified as anonymous. So Luke knew what it meant to be an outsider in this Jewish literary culture. Luke, who was familiar with being missed and marginalized and not understood. Luke is the only one who tells us, and this guy was a Samaritan. He wasn't just a leper. You probably know that leprosy is the oldest recorded disease in biblical history. Most people think it's a dermatological disease, but it's not. It's actually a disease that involves the internal nervous system. It's manifest on the skin. We still have leprosy in this day and age. It's usually called Hansen's disease now. Some rural areas in India, some third world countries where they still have Hansen's disease. And at this point in this particular man's journey with the disease of leprosy, historians say his skin was likely sloughing off all over his body. His hair was bleached white because leprosy would leach the color out of your hair. It would dissolve your connective tissue, so he's probably got no lips. His eyebrows are gone. His nose is deformed. He's emitting a horrific stench because his insides are basically rotting. His teeth have fallen out because his gums are receding with disease. This guy is a mess. There's 10 of them. And Jesus and the disciples recognized them from a distance because according to Jewish ceremonial law, lepers had to scream everywhere they went, unclean, unclean, unclean. It's legally incumbent upon them to yell unclean everywhere they went because it was a highly contagious disease. 
And so to keep others from contracting leprosy, it was incumbent upon them to let everybody know, I'm unclean and I'm in your midst so that you and I could back away from them. Lepers, I'm sure you remember, were not allowed to be in community. They're not allowed to be in church. They're not allowed to be in congregational worship. It's also legally incumbent upon a leper to dress in rags. This is in the book of Leviticus. They had to dress in rags. They couldn't tend to their hair. So they had very messy dreads, filthy clothes. They were physically disfigured. And just in case you and I were hard of hearing, we could see from a distance that they were lepers because of their dress and their hair. So completely ostracized by first century culture. Jesus sees these 10 guys. He immediately knows they're lepers because of their condition. And they begin to cry out, Jesus, Master, they don't say Jesus, Lord, like some of the other lepers did. Anytime you come upon the word Lord in your New Testament, that means Adonai in the original Greek, the Christ. In other words, when a leper in Mark 1 calls Jesus Lord, he's saying, I believe you are the Christ. These guys aren't saying, I believe you are the Christ. They're saying, I believe you are a rabbi, which means possibly, maybe you have the possibility of healing us. But it's a Hail Mary pass. I don't know what you call that in real football in New Zealand, but in America, we would call that a Hail Mary pass. It's a last resort. You don't really think you're going to score, but this is your last chance. Their Hail Mary pass was maybe this rabbi could help us. And Jesus just speaks a very simple law to them. No doubt they've heard this hundreds of times before. Pastor Scott said yesterday, miracles happen when we turn and we begin to walk in obedience before we see the miracle. If we will hear the voice of God and just go, yes, sir. Not, but, sir. I tend to put a lot of buts in God's face. And that is not what Scripture says we're supposed to do as his beloved. It says the moment God tells us to do something, we go, yes, sir, even if we can't see the miracle. That's what these fellows do, although we do not know if they are believers because they haven't called him Lord. But all ten, and I think maybe it's because they've got nothing else to do, turn toward the priest. The moment they turn toward the priest, they aren't even there yet. They just turn toward the priest the moment they do their heels. Their skin goes from being filthy and sloughing off and horrifically disfigured. They're just like clean as can be. Perfect. Nine of them start doing backflips down Main Street. And only one stops. Only one. He stops. He turns. He goes back to Jesus. He falls at Jesus' feet. And he says, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And Luke says, and he was a Samaritan. In other words, he had a double whammy. Of hard. He was not only physically disfigured with disease, but because 700 years before the birth of Christ, the Assyrians, a warring people group, defeated northern Israel. And in order to further sub subjugate the Jewish people, they married the Jewish widows, the Jewish widows who were widows because they had massacred their husbands. They took these Jewish widows as second and third and fourth wives. And they impregnated these Jewish widows to further weaken the Jewish bloodline. And the children who were born from those Assyrian warriors and those Jewish widows were called Samaritans, half-breeds. They, uh, they were not considered appropriate in their culture. They were considered dirty, filthy. 
There was a rabbinic law that said um, that if you invited a Samaritan into your home to share a meal, you were heaping coals of fire on your children's heads. So Samaritans were marginalized as a people group. They were despised as a people group. Missy and I live in Nashville, Tennessee. We live 30 minutes north of a town where the KKK was formed. And if you don't know much about the KKK, it's a group of of bigoted racists that were formed in the, I think the 40s in America and their main driving force is that they hate people with brown skin. And so somebody with the perfect amount of melanin in her skin, like my little girl, they consider my girl worse than the gum underneath their shoes. Missy and I were walking down Main Street recently in Nashville, and this gentleman was walking toward us, and I don't have good vision anymore, and so I thought he was grinning. And so I just grinned back. Missy and I were wearing matching T-shirts because I think we should. Um, Because, you know, I'm just like, this is so cool. I'm old, and I have this kid, and this is amazing. I'm always so proud as a mom. And so I think he's looking at us going, oh, my goodness, look at the big one and the cute little one. And I'm thinking he's just thinking how cute we are. As we got closer, I realized he wasn't grinning. He was grimacing. And right as Missy and I were passing this elderly gentleman, he spit in front of us and he said, that's disgusting. And after we walked past, I said, honey, wait just a second. And I tackled that man and punched him in the face. (laughs) I so wanted to, though. I so wanted to. I didn't. I didn't. I just prayed for heaping coals of fire on his head. But... But what Missy and I sometimes experience in the southeastern U.S., this man, this tent leper, had experienced his whole life. So when Jesus heals him from a double dose of heart, he can't not go back and say thank you. Missy wasn't my first adoption attempt. When I was 47, I was woven into the story of a young woman who had gotten pregnant through prostitution. She was a hardcore crack addict. I call her Marie. And through a friend of mine who works with women in solicitation and in recovery, um, I got woven into her story. This friend of mine said, Lisa, there's a little girl who's gotten pregnant. Uh, Her jaw is currently broken from one of her johns. And she's pregnant, and it is an absolute miracle that she doesn't want to abort her baby. She wants to possibly carry this baby to term. The doctors are saying the baby won't make it to term because she's such a hardcore drug user and has been for the last decade. But I was just wondering if you would consider walking through this journey with with Marie and if you would consider the possibility of adopting her unborn baby girl. And so God just knit us together. I just fell in love with this 23-year-old little mama. If I told you her backstory, you would understand, understand why she medicated. Just tremendous pain. If any of y'all give that mama with a baby a dirty look, I'm going to pray you get hives because I love the sound of babies in church. That's a miracle to me. Don't you worry about that baby. Not bothering me at all. If it bothers any of y'all, I'm just going to punch you in the throat. So I love, I love the sound of babies in church. Um, So anyway, I started the process with Marie and I walked through life with this young pregnant girl for seven months. Um, Got to spend a lot of time with her, spent Christmas that year in the crack house where she lived. 
uh, because when I was with her, she smoked a lot less. There were a lot of Johns that continued to try to solicit her services, even though she was just so pregnant. She was 83 pounds before she got pregnant, 113 when she delivered. So teeny girl, and yet men would still come to the crack house to solicit her services. I was just shocked by the evil um, in some people's hearts. Um, I went to the door for one man who I knew his backstory. I knew he was a plumber, and he had five kids, and he had a wife. And so it just made me mad that he was coming to solicit this precious little girl who wasn't mentally well. Uh, Marie was developmentally disabled, and it just slayed me that he would come, instead of being with his wife, he would come to solicit, solicit a prostitute who was eight months pregnant. And so I decided to meet him at the door because the pimp was out, and I said, I'm going to go to the door and meet this guy. So I went to the door, and I said, hello, Larry. That's your name, right? And he was like, that is my name. He thought I was the new girl, and he goes, what's your name? And I said, it's, it's Lisa. And I said, I'm a, I'm a friend of Marie's. I understand you're here to solicit her services. And he was like, well, yeah. He started to say, but I might solicit yours. And I said, you dirty son of a gun. She's eight months pregnant. I ought to kick your rear end because he was little. I knew I could take him. And he <laughs> ran back to his van. And I got a call from the FBI the next morning because they were staking out this crack house. And they were like, Lisa, you cannot chase Johns into the yard from a crack house. You're going to get killed. And I was like, I couldn't help it. I was just so mad at what was happening to this precious, broken little mama. Uh, it was really an amazing journey. It was hard. It was a really, really hard seven months to do life with her. And at the very end of the journey, I got a phone call from the adoption agent. She said, Lisa, I know this has been really hard. I know all the ups and downs have just about worn you out. But she said, I'm calling with good news. She said, in five days, Marie is going to be induced. The doctors were shocked. She had carried the baby to turn. They kept thinking she would lose the baby because of her drug abuse, because she was so little. And they said, she's going to be induced in five days. And you are the only person legally allowed to bring Anna Price home from the hospital. Marie had allowed me to name her baby girl, and I named her Anna after Anna in Luke's gospel, you remember Anna the prophetess who waited so long to meet baby Jesus, and I felt like I hadn't waited as long as Anna. She was 113, but I'd waited a long time to meet my baby, and I wanted to have the kind of hope that Anna did. So I named her Anna for Anna in Luke's gospel. And then my little brother's name is Price, and our family kind of has a Jerry Springer feel to it. So I thought I can kind of redeem our family's lineage by naming her Anna Price. And I was so excited when I got off the phone and my agent said, you're gonna bring her home in five days. You're the only one legally allowed to bring her home in five days. Every single entity involved has signed on, on you bringing her home. She's about to be Anna Price Harper. And so I got off the phone and I called my mom and my mom and I just wept over the goodness of God. And then I called a couple of best friends I had told all of my friends in Nashville, y'all, this is such a precarious adoption. Don't send me gifts. Don't give me showers. Just pray. Pray that Marie will come to know the love of Christ and walk away from crack. Pray that the baby will be safe. I uh, said, so, but don't, don't give me gifts. We, we won't know until I actually have her home if this actually happens. 
And so when I got off the phone with one of my best friends, I realized there was a knock at the door and uh, it was the UPS guy and he was carrying this big package. And I opened it up and it was from a friend who had broken what I told her to do, kind of broken my rule. And she had sent me a gift. And she wrote me a card and she said, I know you told us not to send you baby gifts, but she said, Lisa, I know like I know my name that you're bringing Anna Price home. And I know that the generational sin and her backstory is gonna stop when she becomes a harper. And I believe her future is gonna be clean. So I saw this jacket in a kid's shop and I just had to get it for you. It was a tiny miniature, zero to three months fur coat, a white fur coat. My friend's husband has done very well. And I pulled that jacket out of the box and I just burst into tears. And I kind of collapsed on the couch just crying because nobody's ever bought me a mink coat. And I was like, I can't believe this. Like, I can't believe this is happening. Maybe 30 minutes after I opened that gift, the phone rang again and I saw on caller ID, it was my adoption agent. And so I thought maybe I'd just forgotten to scan some paperwork and send it back. And I went, hey, Angie. And as soon as I heard her voice, I knew it wasn't good news. And she said, Lisa, I don't even know how to tell you this. She said, but the, the bottom has fallen out, and that was six years ago. I'm still not legally at liberty to share what happened next. All I can share is I lost Marie, I lost Anna Price, and everything fell apart five days before I was supposed to bring that baby home. And I collapsed back on the couch, and I cried like I've never cried in my whole life. I felt like somebody had just dragged me to the highway and I'd gotten run over by a truck. I felt like I'd been stabbed through the heart. I just thought, I don't know if I can peel myself up off the pavement. Maybe 30 minutes after that phone call, the phone rang again. I saw it was my mom and I thought, oh, goodness gracious. I do not have the emotional wherewithal to talk to my mama. But my mama is nothing if not persistent. And so if I don't answer the phone when she calls, she'll just eventually call 911. <laughs> and so I thought I'll just pick it up and just have a real brief conversation with her. And so I said, hey, mama. And she didn't even recognize that my voice was broken. She said, honey, I'm so sorry to call you with such bad news on such a celebratory day, but I need you to pray for me. I just got off the phone with my doctor. And you know, I told you I had this ongoing bladder infection. She said, honey, it's not a bladder infection. I just found out I have stage four appendiceal cancer. And the doctor is telling me I don't have long to live. And she said, honey, I'm really scared. And I just need you to pray for me. And I didn't tell my mama in that phone call that we had lost Anna Price. She was so excited because Anna Price was going to be her first granddaughter. My sister has two sons. My brother has one. And so I couldn't tell her in that phone call we had lost Anna Price. I just prayed for my mama. I prayed that God would give her peace in the midst of this horrible news about her cancer. I got off the phone with my mom. After a while, I just felt like I had been just wrecked. Maybe 30 minutes later, the phone rings again, and it was my daddy. My parents divorced when I was a little girl. Very acrimonious, violent divorce. My father was abusive and then came to Christ and was just a lovely man later in his life, but he and my mom hated each other. And so he had no idea what had just happened. I hadn't told him about Anna Price. He was just calling me from out of the blue. And really the only thing my mom and my dad have in common is they're persistent. And so when I saw his number, I thought I'm going to have to talk to dad, even though I don't want to talk to dad. 
And I said, hey, Daddy, how you doing? My dad's real tough. Put himself through college, busting Bronx and the rodeo. So he's a little man, but just tough as nails. And uh, he said, baby, sorry to bother you. He said, but I just got off the phone with my doctor. My dad had battled colon cancer five years before, successfully, we thought. He said, I just got off the phone with my doctor. I had my yearly scans, and he said, baby, the cancer's back. He said, it's not just in my colon anymore. It's in my lungs. It's in my bones. And he said, the doctor's given me two months to live. He said, Nalisa, I'm not scared. I'm 80 years old. I know exactly where I'm going to go. He said, but I'm worried about your sister. And I don't want to call her and tell her the news, so I wanted to call you so you could call your sister. I told you we were a little Jerry Springer. And so I said, okay, Daddy. So I prayed with my dad on the phone. And when I got off that phone call with my dad, y'all, I just didn't feel like I could get up off the couch. I thought, I don't even know how to walk this out. I've lost this baby that I was going to bring home in five days. It looks like I'm going to lose my mama. It looks like I'm going to lose my daddy. I don't... I don't feel like I can breathe, much less pray. Gratitude was nowhere in my frame of reference. I just wanted to crawl under the covers and eat Ben and Jerry's, which is our version of Hokey Pokey. <laughs> and, and then I realized, I just had this shock, and I was like, oh, goodness gracious, I've got to go to my room to pack because I committed to preach in Kansas City at a gathering of pastors, and the subject they gave me to preach about tomorrow is the faithfulness of God. And I was like, Lord, you've chosen the wrong girl. I mean, I I don't feel like I have any faithfulness right now. I'm not even sure I can put one foot in front of the other. I didn't sleep that night. I cried the whole way to the airport early the next morning. It was not pleasant making small talk with the person who sat next to me on the plane. I just wanted to bury my head in the magazine. But let me tell you what wasn't hard the next day. It wasn't hard to get up in front of a group of saints like y'all and say, our God is faithful. Because by then, I had looked back over my life, and as brokenhearted as I was, I could honestly say I've never seen God's back. I've never felt God's absence, even in the deepest valleys of my life, like right now. He is faithful. He's present. And somehow, some way, I can't explain it theologically, but His grace is enough. I am able to put one foot in front of the other. I mean, I'm trudging, but He is carrying me just as sure as those friends carried their friend to the roof and lowered him to Jesus. God is carrying me. He is always good, even when I can't see through the glass because it's too dim. Two weeks later, I was in a hospital waiting room in Orlando, Florida, waiting to hear from the surgeon who's trying to get the cancer out of my mom's abdomen. And four hours after the surgery started, he called and he said, we've got mostly good news. He said, Lisa and Teresa, my sister, he said, we've got the majority of your mother's cancer. There's some that we couldn't access, but it's slow growing, the part we couldn't get. So the good news is your mother will die, but she will not die of cancer. He said, we've gotten most of it. And so my sister and I just celebrated and wept in that that waiting room. Two days later, We were leaning over my mom. She was still in surgical intensive care. And that same surgeon called and he said, "Uh, uh, Lisa, I need to talk to you. I don't have good news today. He said, even though the surgery was successful, evidently your mother's body was so weakened from the cancer, 
her numbers continue to decline. And he said, if her numbers don't turn around here in the next 24 hours, we're going to lose your mother. He said, I understand you to be a woman of faith. And so I just called to tell you now would be the time to pray. And so my sister and I were just devastated by that phone call. We were kind of leaning over my mom and she came to, she'd been unconscious pretty much since the surgery. And when she came to, she motioned for me to come to her and she whispered, she had been intubated. So she barely had a voice and she said, I need to see your father. And I looked at my sister because my stepfather my mom remarried when I was six, so she had been married to John Angel for 40 years. We thought she was talking about my stepfather, who had died the year before. And my sister went, you tell him. <laughs> because we thought she was just so agitated from the morphine, she didn't remember daddy was dead. And I've always been the windbag in the family, so my sister was like, you tell her. And I was like, oh, law. So I leaned over mom, and I said, mom, I'm, I'm so sorry. I said, but remember, Daddy, Daddy passed away last November. Daddy isn't here anymore. And she went, not that father. And I looked at my sister. My mom and my dad hadn't spoken in 40 years. My mom hated my dad. And we were just both so stunned. She was like, do you think we should call him? And I was like, well, that's her, what seems to be her dying request. So we called my dad Harper and explained the situation to him. And he said, you give me an hour and I'll be there. Sure enough, an hour later, here comes my tough, gruff old daddy, little but just comes walking down the hospital corridor. And he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. And your mother and I need some privacy. So you stay here. I'm going to go in and be alone with your mother. And he walks into her hospital room. And I thought, we're about to be on the news. But my daddy's going to put a pillow over my mama's face. I was like, this is awful. Well, he was in there with her for about 20 minutes. My sister and I were just nervous as cats. About 20 minutes later, my daddy comes walking out right before about we're about to bust in on him. He comes walking out. And he said, Lisa, Teresa, I love you girls. Your mother's going to be fine. I'll be back here same time tomorrow. He swaggers off. We go flying into her room to make sure she's still breathing. And my mama is sitting up in bed. She's got color in her face. First time since way before the surgery. She's sitting up in bed, completely alert. And she said, girls, your father anointed me with oil. I'm going to be fine. And I thought, they are giving her that medicinal marijuana. And there's just, there's no stinking way she can go from almost dead to sitting up in bed completely fine. Y'all, it was a miracle. Two days later, they released her from the hospital. My mama today is 82 years old. She walks six miles a day. But that's, that's not even the biggest miracle in this story. It's not the biggest miracle in this story. The biggest miracle is from that day in April of 2014 until February 7th of 2015, my mother and my father either saw each other or talked by phone every single day. My mama was the very last person with my daddy holding his hand and reading the Bible to him before he stepped from this life into the next, into the arms of Jesus. Y'all, I'd stop praying for my parents to reconcile. It wasn't a, a, a romantic reconciliation. They didn't fall in love again. They just reconciled the sweetest 
friendship. It's like they knew where all the bodies were buried in each other's lives. And they just came together for that last chapter of his life. And they loved each other so well. I had stopped praying for that. I didn't believe big enough. The reason I am so undone with gratitude as a 56-year-old mom is he has done greater things than I even had the faith to pray for. He is good. He does good. He is always kind, even when we can't see around the corner of our circumstances. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from Life. If you have questions or want to contact someone about this message, visit lifenz.org.